Amen. Good morning, church. It's good to be with you all. Uh, this was uh, not planned, just so you know. It's a preacher's worst fear when he wakes up without a voice. And uh, maybe a preacher's second worst fear when he gets a call midweek and get asked to come preach. Actually, I'm really excited. Um, I'm grateful to be able to fill the pulpit here and uh, thankful for Paul and uh, for the work he's doing here. And I know you are as well. I'm, uh, I'm going to encourage you to take your Bible and open up to Genesis chapter 3. And we are in the midst, as a, uh, the Christian church is, in the midst of Advent season. And I, I, I understand you are going to be kicking off your Christmas series. And so I'm grateful to be able to kind of help maybe kickstart that for you this morning. And I want to I want to focus on an Advent theme with you. I want to focus on um, this week's particular Advent theme. Um, Advent, by the way, simply um, means to wait or to anticipate. It's a a time of the year when Christians look towards uh, what's called the first Advent of Jesus or the first coming of Jesus. And there's four weeks in the Christian Advent calendar. The first week is hope. The second week is love. And this week, the third week, is joy. And there really is a sense when you think about the incarnation, when you think about Christmas Day and what we celebrate, there is a sense where not only are we waiting, um, and people have waited and and did wait for thousands of years for the coming of Jesus, for the first coming, there's a sense in which the first coming of Jesus points us further towards the second advent and the second coming of Jesus. When everything that Jesus did and accomplished in his first coming will be ultimately consummated and fulfilled. And so I want to kind of draw our attention towards this idea of joy, and I hope to further your joy to, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians to the church, to be a worker for your joy, and I want to right now just pray for our joy, so let's do that together. Father, we do pray that you would help to increase our joy now as we look to your word, as we think about the gospel. God, we're very aware, Lord, that this world is filled with sorrow and pain and tragedy and difficulty. Father, maybe some even in this room around this time of year, oh Lord, they're not filled with joy, but in, instead, Lord, they're reminded of pain, heartache, and the sorrows of, of life in, in, in a, a sin-sick, fallen world. And I pray, Father, that you would particularly meet with them, and maybe, Father, in your grace, would you move them from sorrow to joy this morning? Lord, for those who know the joy of Jesus, I pray, Father, that you would heighten that joy, that you would, Lord, as we take a glimpse at your word, we peer into the beauty of the gospel. Father, would you help us to be amazed and filled with joy, cause our hearts to rejoice at the truths that we, we even know and love and cherish. Help us, Lord, to treasure them more this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, In order for us to helpfully anticipate the joy of the coming Messiah this Christmas season, I want to take us back um, to when the waiting anticipation actually began. Right to the very beginning of the Bible, right to Genesis 3, uh, specifically verse 15. This is when the waiting and the anticipation of Christmas Day began, at least in its seed form, in its kernel form. 
prior to this, everything had been fantastic. There was no waiting for, every, for anything. There was simply joy. There was enjoyment of God's good creation. There was the beauty and majesty of all that God had made. And at the, the pinnacle, the center of it all was the joy of the presence of God amongst his people. But you know the story as well as I do. Very quickly, humanity turned from the joy of God towards the sorrows of sin. And that's where we find ourselves here in Genesis 3.15. We've already seen, just prior to this, the, the breakdown of humanity as they disobeyed God in the garden. They rebelled against God. They did the one thing that God told them not to do. They ate from the, the, the tree. They, they took of the forbidden fruit. God has confronted them just before this. They were hiding from God. Remember that? They, they took and they ate, but they hid from God in their shame they were naked, and they knew it for the first time. There was so much guilt, so much shame. And God comes to them, and in his kindness and in his grace, he speaks to them. And right here, we're given the promise of hope for humanity. We're given a promise of hope that is undergirded by love, the very love of God, who's willing to, instead of judging humanity instantly and giving them what they rightfully deserve, instead preserves them. And the natural result of this kind of hope and this kind of love should be joy. This promise is the first glimmer of hope. It is the sign of God's continued love and it ought to stir joy. I want to simply read verse 15, and then we're going to springboard off of here and look at a, a number of psalms this morning together. Here's what he says to the serpent, but notice how this is really a promise that's given to humanity. He says, I will put enmity between you, that's the serpent who is Satan, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel You see, this, this doesn't sound like joy. This doesn't look like joy. When we read it, it certainly doesn't appear like there's a lot of joy to be found in here. And it almost kind of feels like the opposite, doesn't it? When you read this, there's a sense of heartache here. It kind of looks and feels a little bit more like, like sorrow, at least at first glance. After all, it is following the worst day in human history. I used to read a, a, a storybook Bible with my kids written by David Helm. Some of you may have this. It's the, the, I think it's called the biggest storybook Bible or something like that. And when David Helm gets to this day on Genesis chapter 3, here's the title he says of this day. It is the saddest day or a very, excuse me, sad day. And that's exactly what has led us to this point. But that's exactly what makes this moment so incredible. Instead of allowing humanity to live in sorrow, God gives them this reason to have joy. In the midst of ruin, there is a call to rejoicing. And it would have been easy right now for Adam and Eve in particular to be crushed under the, the weight of their sin, under their guilt and shame and condemnation, to experience the kind of despair that could make life unlivable. But here, the promise of hope is birthed out of God's love. It is a promise that leads to four things. It leads us first from the sorrow of sin to the joy of repentance. 
The sorrow of sin enters the world here through Adam, and as Romans 5 makes clear, from now on, sin will be one of the more defining features of humanity. Sin does lead us to guilt and shame, and ultimately, if we're left in our sin, it leads us to condemnation. The shame of sin causes us to excuse. Isn't this what happens? Just think about this in your own life. When confronted with sin, we're, we're often prone to excuse, to justify, to blame our sin on someone else or something else, maybe our circumstances or another person, or maybe, a worst of all, to hide our sin. This is, in fact, what Adam and Eve had been guilty of just before this very moment. Remember when God confronts them? By the way, it is a, a pure act of God's grace that he confronts them. And, and it's so fascinating. When you read through the account of this confrontation, what's so startling is that God doesn't directly bring their sin to light. Did you ever notice that? He doesn't just kind of point the finger and say, look what you've done. In fact, he asks them questions. You see, why does God ask them questions? Here's the simple answer. He's giving them every opportunity to repent of their sin. He's calling them out of their sin and shame, and he's giving them the chance to simply come clean and to repent. He's showing them that he's willing, he's ready and willing to forgive their sin. But instead, remember what they do? They're confronted, and Adam, Adam's confronted, and you know, his claim is, God, this woman that you gave me. The first, but probably the last night that Adam slept on the couch. Eve, she's, she's not much better. What does she do? She points to, to Satan, right? The serpent. He deceived me. And, and in every one of these accusations, can you hear what they're saying? God, this isn't our fault. Whose fault is it? It's the woman's fault. It's the Satan's fault. But behind that, you want to know what they're really saying? God, this is your fault. And the only time they acknowledge their sin is when they have no choice. When it's right in front of their face. And it's interesting because Eve, the, the temptation is so fascinating, and we can relate to this, right? Eve is tempted by the serpent, and what does she do? It says the Bible says she sees that the fruit is good. She desires it in her heart, and then she takes it for herself. And then once Adam and Eve blow up all of the goodness of God in his creation, they hide. They hide from God. They hide their sin. And that certainly doesn't lead to anything good or profitable. Because those are destructive responses to sin. They always are and they always have been. But there's also a, another way we can live with a destructive response to sin. You see, we can see our sin, we can acknowledge our sin, but we can live in utter hopelessness and despair because of our sin. Believing that, that we're unforgivable one of the most common objections I hear from, from people who are kind of teetering on the edge of, of faith, you know, they're, they're kind of right there. They're, they understand the gospel in some sense. They, they, they know the facts of the gospel, but, but they're, they're so caught up in their own guilt and shame. One of the common objections is this. There's, there's just no way God could forgive a sinner like me. You have no idea what I've done. You have no, you have no idea the depths of, of, of depravity of my sin. And, and maybe even, you know, for I, I find this with a lot of people who've 
walked away from the faith, and they're trying to come back. They're, they're fighting to come back. They're so trapped in this mentality that maybe, maybe I'm beyond repentance. Maybe I'm beyond forgiveness. And so we live in our sin, and it begins to eat away at our humanity. Sometimes it literally eats away at us, right? We, we, we can't eat, we can't sleep, and we, we wither away. Or perhaps in our self-indulgent culture, and this is going to maybe touch on a bit of a nerve around the Christmas season, instead of letting it eat away at us, we actually letting it fatten us up, both in the literal and figurative sense. We try to assuage our guilty conscience by doing whatever we can to make ourselves feel better. Even for a moment, we eat more, right? We binge eat or we drink too much. We watch too much. We shop too much. We scroll too much. We sleep too much. We play too much. We work too much. And in many cases, that is simply an attempt to try to quench our dry and thirsty souls, but it's like trying to quench that thirst with salt water. Rather than quenching, it's killing. And in many ways, what our world calls addiction is sometimes, oftentimes perhaps, simply an attempt to numb the sorrows of sin. We have a strange ability to avoid dealing with our sin. And that's the very thing that actually steals our joy and increases our sorrow. One of the greatest examples of this is seen in the life of, of King David. You know, you know the story of King David. And you know, as he rises to power, all of a sudden he becomes king. And there's this season in his life where the kings go out to war, but he decides to stay at home. Doesn't do what he's supposed to do. And it's really fascinating, this, this episode of David and Bathsheba is eerily similar to the episode of Adam and Eve in the garden. In fact, I think it's an echo of the garden. Because here's David, he's alone on his roof, and, and you know what the text says? He looks over and he sees this woman bathing, he sees. And he desires her in his heart. So much so that the dominant word in the account, the narrative account of David and Bathsheba is this word, listen, take. He goes and he takes. He sends men to take her. He takes, 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 takes what is not rightfully his. And then what does he do after he has indulged in sin? I mean, he tries to hide his sin, doesn't he? He's just like Eve, and he's just like Adam. He tries to, to cover it up, to smooth it over. He even kills the husband of Bathsheba. And then what does he do? He tries to bury the whole thing, pretend like nothing happened, and it goes by for a year like this. A whole year. Until one of, I think, the most startling accounts in all of Scripture, the prophet Nathan comes to David, and he, he comes into his throne room, and he, he, he presents to him this situation, right? This hypothetical situation. It's like, David, let me tell you a story. I need some advice from you. He tells him this story about a, a man who was rich, and, and this man had, had great flocks, right? He had all that he needed. He had all of the best of the best. He had hundreds of, of little lambs, and beside him, he had a poor neighbor, his poor neighbor only had one little lamb, and that, that little lamb actually was treated like a child in this man's house. He lived with his, his family, and he ate at the table. Well, as Nathan tells the story, 
somebody comes to visit from out of town, this rich man, and this rich man, not wanting to use his own resources, decides he's going to take what is not his. He's going to take this little precious lamb from this poor man. He's going to slaughter that lamb, and he's going to use that to feed his dinner guests. And Nathan looks at David and says, David, what should be done with this man? And David, in anger and fury, says, that man should die. And in one of the most stunning and startling moments in all of Scripture, Nathan looks right in the eyes of David and says, David, you are the man. And as the sorrow of sin floods over him, what we see in David is so unique, it's so important. Listen, he had been living in sin for a year, hiding it, covering it, but the moment he felt the convicting power of God come through the word of the prophet, what does he do? He breaks underneath its weight. And he writes one of the, the most powerful psalms in, in, in the Psalter. Psalm 51, and I simply want to, if, if you have your, you can turn there to Psalm 51, and we're going to spend a, a lot of time in the Psalms. I thought that would be fitting um, uh, when we're dealing with the topic of joy. You know, the Psalter is Israel's songbook, and it's filled, by the way, with both songs of sorrow and songs of joy. And it's interesting, Psalm 51 is filled with both. It's filled with, with unimaginable sorrow because of sin, but it's filled with unimaginable joy because of repentance. I mean, David begins, like, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you and only you have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And look what he says in verse 8. I love this. He says, let me hear joy and gladness. How? How, David? Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. And you see, what we see in the life of David and, and through all of the scriptures is that the sorrow of sin can actually lead us to the joy of repentance. That's why Paul can say in Romans 2, 4, that it is the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance. It's the grace of God because when you, when you sit and you live in your sin, all you do is you heap up shame and guilt and condemnation. And, and it's like repentance is the breaking of the dam. Right? All the, the weight is just being held up on you. And the longer you try to hold it, the harder it gets, the more painful it gets, the more broken you become until finally, listen, because of the grace of God, it all breaks forth. That's what repentance does. Acknowledging your sin, turning from your sin. And the reason repentance leads to joy, the reason David can write these words, the reason we can sing them even from the depth of our own soul is because we know that even though we live sometimes with the sorrow of sin, the joy of repentance reminds us that our God is a God of forgiveness. Amen? 
And that should produce joy in the heart of any person in this room. If you have experienced the forgiveness of God, listen, I don't care what else you have or don't have in this world, you have everything you need to be a person of joy. Your sins are washed away. He's taken your sin and he's cast it as far as the east is from the west, so far as he cast our our sin from us. He has taken you who were scarlet and he has made you white as snow. How fitting on a day like today. That's you because of God's grace and forgiveness. So let me ask you maybe this morning, are you holding on to sin and shame? Are you living in sorrow and despair? Let the promise of Scripture, of Genesis 3.15, lead you from the sorrow of sin to the joy of repentance. Let your heart be refreshed and renewed today in repentance. You're like, it's so hard. I know. Repentance. Listen, I'm not going to mince words here. Repentance is hard, and oftentimes it's humiliating, and oftentimes it's incredibly painful. But can I tell you this? It is so worth it. It is hard, but it is healing. Repentance is refreshing, and it brings rejoicing. Secondly, let the promise lead you from the sorrow of death to the joy of redemption. You see, in order for repentance and forgiveness to be fully realized, redemption is required. We must be freed from the power of sin and its consequences, which is death. Paul says this in the book of Romans, that the wages of sin is death. Paul only gets that from Genesis chapter 3. Remember that God had promised uh, Adam and Eve that, you know, again, I just want you to picture this, okay, that the scene in Eden is this, everything is yours for the taking, We often focus on the negative prohibition that God gives, but I I want you to counter that for a moment in your mind with the positive call to enjoy all that God has given. One thing you can't do, one thing you can't have. Everything else is yours, and it's awesome. And, And what God says in the book of Genesis to Adam and Eve, it's interesting in the Hebrew. He says, if you eat of this tree, here's the first promise of the Bible to be true. If you eat of the tree... You will surely, what? Die. Now, in the Hebrew, here's what it says. Dying, you shall surely die. Okay? It's it's a double emphasis. He's making it emphatic in the minds of Adam and Eve. It's like a parent... Right, you're dealing with your, your young two-year-old child, and they, they go to touch you know, the, the outlet, and you're like, no, bad, bad. Like, that's going to be really bad. And so here's Adam and Eve being told that the penalty for their disobedience will indeed be death. That death, we know, will be both physical eventually, but it is also spiritual in nature. We'll get to that. And so what we see in Genesis 3.15 is that the sin that is brought about in one sense through the temptation of the serpent Satan but is really brought through Adam and Eve in their rebellion, is being countered with the right promise right here of redemption. And here's what I want you to, when you read Genesis 3.15, I want you to think of it as a promissory note of future redemption. 
And at this point in the narrative, right, here, here's the question, okay? So, so the promise is that one is going to come and he's going to uh, crush the head of the serpent, though his heel is going to be bruised. There's really two questions that are really kind of flowing out of this initial promise to Adam and Eve. Here's the, the first question being asked, who will this offspring of Eve be? Who's the one who's going to come and make everything right again? Who's the one who's going to come and going to overcome the serpent who has overcome humanity? Who's the one? What's his name? What does he look like? When is he coming? And it's going to take a long time. They don't know that yet. But the other question I think that's, that's naturally asked of this text is this. Well, how exactly is he going to do this? And we actually get a hint, don't we, from the text. It's going to come through some kind of suffering. His heel is going to be bruised. Yes, he's going to crush the head of the serpent. But, but, but doing that means he will somehow have to suffer. This is the means by which humanity will ultimately be redeemed. The word redemption is a common word in the Bible, and it actually evokes images. If you were to read through the Old Testament, it would evoke images of the marketplace. Think business transactions, okay? Of purchasing something. To redeem something is to buy it back or to buy it back especially at a cost, to liberate or to set free for a price. And if you were to survey the Old Testament, the use of this word, in all the cases of redemption, there was a decisive and costly intervention required. Somebody, for example, had to pay the price necessary to free property from a mortgage, animals uh, from slaughter, or people from slavery, and sometimes even death. Its most potent use in the scriptures relates to Israel's redemption or deliverance out of Egypt in the Exodus and out of Babylon in the exile. Let me just give you two scriptures. Uh, the first is Deuteronomy 6. And in Deuteronomy chapter 6, here's what it says, verse 6. It says, and these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. And you shall teach them diligently while you... Sorry, I, I went to the wrong passage. That's Exodus chapter 6. It's like, wait a second, that's not right. I know that verse. Exodus chapter 6, verse 6. And here's what it says. It says, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. Notice they will be redeemed by the power of God, and they will be redeemed by acts of judgment. Now, in Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 15, we hear something similar, but there's a response that's required to this deliverance. It says, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this day. In other words, when I redeem you, there are now commands that will naturally flow out of that. 
But it still begs the question, when we look at this promise, well, what exactly is the ransom price? And, and living this side of the cross, we understand that the bruised heel, the suffering that's required, points us to the sorrow of death that is only erased by a substitute who will take the sorrow upon himself. The promise is going to be crystallized through progressive revelation as we continue to march from Genesis 3 onwards. And, and perhaps most specifically, we see it in Isaiah 53. We're reminded that this pointing us to Jesus says that he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Listen to the language here. Be reminded of this. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, and upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. This is why... Paul can say in Ephesians 1 verse 7, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. The, the cross would be the instrument, right? We know this. It's buried again in this promise. It's not fully clarified yet, but we know this. The cross would be the instrument by which the, the head of the serpent would be crushed. Amen? But it's the very cross that would result in the bruising of the heel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The cross reminds us, as we, we anticipate Advent and we anticipate the Incarnation, as we look to the Christmas celebrations that we're going to have, it points us back to the cross and reminds us that, that God loved us so much that he would come into this world, not just as a baby in a manger, but he would die as a Savior on a cross. That he would take where Adam and Eve were given the curse of thorns upon the earth, Jesus Christ would wear the curse of crown, the crown of thorns upon his head. He would take our place, he would accomplish our redemption. He would lead us from the sorrow of death to the joy of redemption. So three questions I have for you. One, do you have the joy of redemption today? Do you know the joy of redemption? Have you actually been redeemed? Have you turned from your sin in repentance and placed your faith in Jesus as the one who came as your substitute, the one who died in your place, who bore your sorrows, your griefs, your transgressions, who was crushed and wounded for you? And, and if so, I have a second question. How, how do you know you have it? You're like, I believe that. How do I, I know I have that? Well, let me, let me give you a synonym for redemption in the Christian life, okay? It's this word here, lordship. How do I know I am redeemed by the blood of Jesus? It's right here, lordship. That's what he talks about in Deuteronomy. You, you see, those who are redeemed, who are purchased, and who understand the grace of God, they respond in full surrender and obedience to the lordship of Jesus Christ. 
It's actually embedded in the term. You see, it draws attention to the Redeemer as the one who has ownership rights over what he has purchased. This is why church, Paul says in Acts 20, 28, that the church was purchased by the blood of Jesus. This is why Paul can say in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 that you are not your own, but you were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. You see, if you have been redeemed, you owe God, your Savior, your Lord Jesus Christ, every single part of you. Everything. And this isn't duty-bound obedience in the Christian life. This is delightful obedience. This is joy-filled obedience because apart from him, we are nothing and could do nothing. He has given us everything. He is our everything. And so we give to him everything we are. This is the Christian life. And then I just ask this, this last question, what is it producing is, is your obedience to the Lord, is the lordship of Jesus in your life actually producing joy? Joy is hindered by a lack of lordship in the life of a believer. Once we were slaves to sin, now we are slaves of Christ and serving him is true freedom. Psalm 20 verse 5 says this, May we shout for joy over your salvation and in the name of our God set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. You see, joy is the right response to the redeeming work of Jesus and our continued submission to his lordship. The promise leads us from the sorrow of death to the joy of redemption. And then third, from the sorrow of separation to the joy of restoration. Psalm 16, 11 says, You make known to me the paths of life. In your presence there is joy. At your right hands are pleasures forevermore. In, at your right hand, he actually says, is the fullness of of joy, not partial joy, not temporary joy, but full, lasting, eternal joy. And you see, that's what our redemption ultimately points to. It's pointing to our restoration with God. You know, one of the greatest sorrows in life is loneliness. It's, it's I think, one of the greatest Sorrow is in this Christmas season for so many people. Uh, so many of us are here. Are, are, I mean, we look at the Christmas season. We look at our families. We have so much to be thankful for. We, we have so many good things planned. But for every person that's filled with joy, there's at least another person who's filled with sorrow at this time of the year. And for many, maybe even sitting in this room, Christmas isn't a time where you look back with fondness and joy. It's a time you look back with hurt and pain. Maybe you think of estranged family members. Abusive parents. Maybe you're all alone. You don't have family. You don't have community. Relational separation, isolation, loneliness. There's, there's almost nothing like it in the Christian life. I'm not sure that any other form of, of suffering compares. I think even Jesus, he gives us a glimpse of this when he hangs on the cross and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, the fall of Adam and Eve 
It brought relational discord horizontally. Adam and Eve, their relationship would never be the same. Human relationships would never be the same. They would not be harmonious the way they were designed to be, but they would be filled instead with conflict and difficulty. But the most devastating consequence of the fall is the relational separation that occurs between man and God. It's interesting, when you read through the scriptures and you have hints at getting back to Eden, do you want to know what's fascinating? They never, people who, you know, humanity that was kicked out of you, they never look back and go, man, we can't wait to go back and see the beauty of Eden. Man, I can't wait to, remember, imagine what it must have been like to, to see those colors and, and the fruit that tasted so amazing. Imagine what life must have been like in Eden. It's never about the, you know, the external things that they could have and enjoy in Eden. You want to know what they always refer to, what they always miss, what their hearts ache for, what their hearts long for? The presence of God. The garden means nothing if God is not there. Christian, likewise, heaven means nothing. Do you realize this? Heaven means nothing. Gold, streets, pearls, gems, eating cream, cheese on clouds, it means nothing if God is not there. It's worthless. In the presence of God in Eden, think about this, it was once the permanent source of joy, but it's now for humanity, following Adam and Eve, it's a distant memory and a deep longing and we get this, listen, we, we look around us in this world and we can see this, but we sense this and we see this in our own hearts, right? This ache for intimacy with God and the sorrow of separation from God. But the promise of Genesis 3.15 points toward a restoration of this broken relationship that those who are far off can be brought near. What's interesting is that humanity is barred from re-entering Eden. They're no longer going to get to experience the presence of God the way they once did. God is not going to dwell with them in the same concentrated, intimate way that he once did. But as you read through the scriptures flowing out of this promise, what you see is that God gives them little signposts along the way, reminding them, listen, that he will one day dwell with them again. He gives them a tabernacle to take with them, a place of worship that's really a microcosm of the Garden of Eden and all of creation, which scholars say is this cosmic temple. But you see, in the tabernacle, God's presence dwells in a unique way. And then they get into the promised land, and what do they do? They build a permanent temple, and the glory of God fills the temple, and the Holy of Holies is concentrated with the very presence and glory of God. And then Jesus comes into this world as a baby. But when John writes about him, what does he tell us? That here comes Jesus, God in flesh. God dwells. He tabernacles among us. It's the word. Jesus says, destroy this temple, and I will rebuild it in three days. He, he dies, crucified for the sins of the world. He rises victorious over sin. He ascends and is exalted to the right hand of the Father. And then he gives his spirit to all those who believe the good news of the gospel. And what does the New Testament say about you if you're in Christ today? You, your body, is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And then what does Peter say about the church of Jesus Christ? We are a, a holy temple made up of living stones. God's presence always 
with his people, always growing into an escalation and a culmination that will one day take place in a future new heavens and new earth. No wonder the psalmist writes, in your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is the staggering reality of the incarnation. The chasm is so great, it's so wide, it's so insurmountable that God has to bridge the gap of separation and only he can accomplish the redemption that brings about restoration for humanity. Here's what you need to hear, church, at this time of the year. God does it all. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. You say, well, what does man add to his own restoration? What does he contribute to his restoration? Only the sin, the sorrow, and the separation that made it necessary. That's it. God comes and does it all. No wonder there's great anticipation for thousands of years. Who's going to come and restore us back to the presence of God? And here's the question for you in this season, this Christmas season. Are you slowing down this season to see and savor your Savior, Jesus Christ. To simply slow down in the busyness of life, and the busyness of this season, to, to dwell with and delight in the presence of God. In the busyness, to actually pause your life a little bit and to actually spend more time in God's Word, not less. To spend more time in prayer, not less. To spend more time around the dinner table with your family or out with your friends talking about the beauty and reality of the saving work of Jesus Christ, not less. Are you emphasizing the goodness of God to restore you back to His presence? Are you enjoying and are you fighting to stay in the presence of God Maybe I can ask you this. Are you leading others from the sorrow of separation towards the joy of restoration? You can never miss this. But when we look at the incarnation, we're reminded of the mission of God, aren't we? That God loved us so much that he came into this world to rescue sinners. But, but church, don't miss this. It connects directly to our mission that God is sending us out into this world to declare that those who are far off can be brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. Who are you telling about Jesus? Who are you leading towards the joy of restoration? Finally, the promise leads us from the sorrow of destruction to the joy of recreation. All creation groans and creaks with the destruction caused by Adam. And there's a sense in which God's good creation was destroyed by sin. Romans 8 talks about this, this groaning. But the scriptures are filled with allusions to this, with reminders that all is not right with the cosmos. Christmas is a reminder that God has come to set all of creation right. I love this picture in Psalm 84, verses 1 and 2, it says, How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. This is a cry to not only be in the presence of God, but to have the whole world 
brought back into its original state, but better. Eden 2.0. And the first coming of Christ reminds us that God was not for, has not forgotten his promise. His, his death and his re- resurrection actually point to what God is going to do with all of creation. It is going to die and he is going to recreate it, to resurrect it, so to speak. And it's interesting that we actually sing about this at this time of year. Maybe, maybe you've never caught this. One of my favorite Christmas songs is Joy to the World. Joy to the World uh, was written by Isaac Watts, who actually drew inspiration from Psalm 98, verse 4, and 96, 11, and 12. Listen to what that says. It says, Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Psalm 96 says this, Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy. It's this picture of all creation lifting their voice when everything is made right again. He also drew inspiration from Genesis 3, 17 through 18, which addresses the cursed earth because of Adam's sin. And in the third stanza of Joy to the World, here's what it says. It says, no more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow, far as the curse is found. Far as the curse is found. One day soon... Jesus is coming again to deal with the destruction of sin far as the curse is found. And he's beginning with weary souls who are in him now and are called a new creation. But he'll deal fully one day with the weary world as he brings about the joy of a new creation. Is it any wonder that at the announcement of Jesus' birth, Matthew, in Matthew 2.10, says this, that when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Luke says in chapter 1, verse 14, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. The promise is pointing us, listen, church, to a person who will one day lead us from the sorrow of sin, death, separation, and destruction right into the joy of repentance, redemption, restoration, and recreation. If I could sum it all up, I'd say it like this. We are being led out of the sorrow of Adam into the joy of Jesus. And one day, our king will sit exalted on his throne, and every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father and all God's people will spend eternity, joy in his name, listen, and rejoicing in his salvation. Let's pray. Father, we praise you. We praise you for the joy that we experience in knowing you, in the redemption that you have accomplished and applied to us. We praise you, Father, that you are a redeemer and a deliverer We thank you, God, that you have sought us and found us and you have brought us back to yourself. And God, I pray that our hearts would be stirred in a fresh way this morning as we consider the gospel, as we consider, Lord, what you promised from the very first pages of Scripture, you have accomplished and brought about through the sending of your own Son, God in flesh, 
The one who would live the perfect, obedient life, die as our substitute in our place, who would suffer the penalty for sin, who would die and rise, and who is now exalted to the right hand of the Father. God, help us now, we pray, to rejoice in him and to give him all the honor, all the praise, and all the glory, both now and forevermore. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.